The sermon text for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 14. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Sad to come to this end of this letter um, that I have uh, come to deeply enjoy. Um, you know, when we think about life, we think about security. Security is a big thing on our on our minds right now. Security on a national level with intelligence and security with issues of of military. We think about security in terms of finances and passcodes and IDs and, you know, the volatility of the market. We think of security in relationship to issues of health, you know, securing our health and making sure that we've got the proper doctoring going on, that we're eating right and that we're maintaining good practice of, of life to secure a, a good, long health. We think about security a lot. We think about security in our relationships. Do I have good friends? Are they rooted in right things? And are they faithful even to me, even in difficult times. One thing we often don't think about, though, is a security of our own salvation. Some do, no doubt, uh, but many days pass, and we don't think about this. Am I secure with God? Is my salvation secure? When, when I face that day, will he know me as his own? We, we don't often think about how secure is my salvation with him. Or if we do think it, we think, well, I, I did commit to him a long time ago, and, and I, I made a decision back when I was younger, perhaps. I prayed, maybe I went forward. And we think, is that what your security is in? Well, you know, Peter is finishing his letter. He, in the first four or five verses, he gave some clear instructions to the elders. Shepherd the flock of God, he said. And he said, when he appears, there'll be a crown of glory for you. He gave clear, final words to the elders. But now he turns to the church, and you see that in verses 5 and 6, where he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, to one another. And he says it in verse 6, humble yourselves. So he's speaking to the church now, and he's giving final words. And the final words that he is giving are, are these final words to help us stand firm. He wants us to stand firm. He wants us to be secure in the faith. He doesn't want us wavering. He wants us to endure he wants us to persevere. You know, for many, 
may, you may not feel secure in your salvation. You may not feel that that, that day will be for sure a good day. Because you do think, well, I, I did pray when I was younger or some expression of faith at one point in your life. But I think Peter's going to provide for us that security in our salvation comes really from the theme of the letter, which is, are you standing firm? Are your feet firmly planted in faith? Are you persevering? Are you enduring? Not what, you ha- not what have you done in life, but are you continuing to do that? So this security in salvation is coming from the theme of the letter, which is, Stand firm. That's what you heard in verse 12, that he's writing so that we stand firm. And what he's going to do here is he's going to give us four warnings. He's giving the church four warnings. This is a church who are aliens and strangers. They're suffering. They're under persecution. He's saying, here's how you stand firm in the faith. Here's how your feet are firmly planted. We don't want to move through life with our feet slipping and sliding. Martin Luther, in his commentary in the book of Romans, quotes this, um, or gives us this great truth. He says this, he says, For he that does not go forward in God's way goes backward. And he that does not persist in seeking loses what he has found. For there is no standing still in the way of God. You are either standing firm in your faith, <clears throat> or your footing is getting loose. Peter's encouraging strong footing, standing firm. So four warnings, they're given as imperatives, they're given as commands, but, but there are promises underneath each one of them. So the first one is this exercising of humility. You see it in verse 6, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Humble yourselves and he'll lift you up in due time. Now, <clears throat> we've often heard this verse applied to more of the virtue of humility and the vice of pride. That's how we generally hear it. You know, you ought to be humble, you ought to loathe pride. Well, I'm sure that that is in there at some level, particularly in verse 5, but, but I think Peter's making a move in verse 6 here uh, to speak more intently about humbling ourselves in the context of suffering. Suffering for your faith. You know, this has been the theme of the letter, in the sense of in chapter 1, he says you've been born again to a living hope and, and that you have an imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for you and you are being kept in, for heaven by God. And then he says, even though now for a little while you go through various trials. Or in chapter 2, he speaks about our relationship to the government and employers and our relationship with, with our spouses and the conflict that comes from one being a Christian and one not. Chapter 3, we learned about suffering for righteousness sake in chapter four he says don't be surprised by the fiery trial that you're enduring as if something strange is happening to you so this theme of suffering has been throughout the letter and i think he's saying humble yourselves under god's mighty hand in times of suffering that that, that this idea of humbling is more of an idea of entrusting yourself of having faith in god that even in the midst of suffering, the whys and the questions you may have, entrust yourself to God. See, these, these Christians in Asia Minor were introducing a monotheistic faith. We believe in one God who has saved us through his unique and only son, Jesus Christ. So they're introducing monotheism in a polytheistic world, and they're introducing exclusivity, the uniqueness of Christ, in an inclusive world. 
And so they were bound to face persecution. Christianity was an affront to the Roman, uh, to the Roman gods. And so they're facing this pressure, and they're facing the, which is causing fear. That's why we read in chapter 2, Peter says, submit to those in authority. I mean, the government was pressing on them because they weren't worshiping the gods of the government. They weren't worshiping the emperor. Uh, he says to submit to those uh, who are your masters, the household servants. Let's make that your employers. Why? Because you're a Christian. You're not worshiping the god of whatever guild I'm in, whatever trade I have. And so you might lose wages. You might lose your job. Or the, the woman was to submit to the husband. Well, she may be a believer and the husband's not. You can imagine the marital disharmony from that. And he's saying, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. In other words, the threat of all this pressure causes us to worry. It causes anxiety. Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my position in society? Am I going to lose my family? And the worry starts welling up in you. And he says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Humble yourself. And so I think that's the warning. To stand firm in this world, we have to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. That's the place that we humble ourselves is God's mighty hand. Now, God's mighty hand, for those of you who have been studying Exodus and the women's and men's study, that's a phrase you've heard repeatedly, the, the mighty hand of God. It's an expression for God's powerful deliverance of Israel from Egypt. It speaks to God's power. The hand of God is an expression for power. And so when you fear that anxiety of what threat may come to you for being a Christian, you are to go to God under his mighty hand. It's not dissimilar to chapter 4, verse 19, when he says, entrust yourselves to God, who is a faithful creator. Peter references God as a creator. Why? Because there's no one greater than God in terms of creation. In the beginning, God. That's it. God made everything. Everything we see, everything we feel, everything we experience, it all came from his word. There's no greater power than God. So the forces that may be before you, put them in the context of who God is. Don't retaliate. When you suffer for the faith, don't retaliate. Don't seek revenge. Don't compromise your faith. Don't go silent. Just humble yourself under God's mighty hand. He tells us what to do under his mighty hand. Cast your anxiety upon him, he says. If you feel that cast your anxiety, that word for anxiety, by the way, means to divide. That's how we feel. We, see, we feel divided when we fear. We feel, we feel this disjointedness, this distractedness. We're scared. We're in fear. Who do we turn to? And you say, no, cast your cares upon him. The only other time that word cast is used in the New Testament is used when the apostles cast their cloaks upon the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. I, I want you to get in your mind this idea of whatever that concern or the fear is, you're casting it upon him. You're, you're entrusting it to him. You're giving it to him. You're turning it over to him. And the reason you can do this is because he cares for you. Amazing how Peter, at the end of his life, he knows that the end of his life is coming soon, and he knows that his hands are going to be stretched out in death, and he's going to go to where he doesn't want to go. So he knows his death is going to be difficult. But he still says, he cares for you. He's interested in you. He, he's concerned over you. Try never to doubt 
God's care for you? I mean, fight that. Don't ever doubt that he doesn't care for you. That's the temptation. That's the, that's the satanic scheme. He doesn't really care for you. If he did, he wouldn't let you go through this. But, but don't, don't buy that. The cross behind me that I preach in front of every, it's always reminding you, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I mean, there is no other greater love than he did not spare his own son. For the love of the world, he gave us Christ. The cross is always screaming to you, I care for you, I love you. So cast your cares upon him. There's a story told by George Mueller. Many of you know his name. He was a leader of many orphanages in England and a man of great faith. He tells about the story of a young boy who was carrying this load on his back to the market. It was a burdening load. It had him down, and, and he was carrying it. And so this man goes by with a horse-drawn carriage, a, a wagon, and he invites this young boy to ride in the back of the wagon. And so the boy gets in the back of the wagon, and he's pulled, but he doesn't take the load off. He continues to bear the load in the wagon. And, and the man says, put the load down. He goes, well, I don't want to burden the horse with my load. As if the horse is going to bear any load. And that's the way we are. We, we bear these burdens. We have this great God. We come here. We worship a, a great and powerful God. And yet we just keep the load on ourselves rather than casting it upon him. So standing firm means that you humble yourself under God's mighty hand. You cast your care upon him. And, and here's, here's where faith comes in that he will exalt you in due time. This is the promise. He will exalt you. He'll lift you up in due time. Now that's in due time. It's a unique little Greek word that means the appointed time, his appointed time. Now I know that when we are suffering, particularly for issues around the faith, we want deliverance now. We don't want deliverance later. We want it right now. And if we don't see the Calvary coming over the hill, if we don't see deliverance coming, we struggle with believing it actually is going to come at all. And, and so standing firm means that we are going to entrust ourselves to God, that he will lift us up in due time. In his time, he will lift us up. Now that's difficult. That's why we need the church, by the way, to encourage one another. No, 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 let's wait. Let's wait on God. Let's be patient on God. God's never late. He's always on time. Now, how do you respond generally when you are struggling and suffering? I mean, do, do you respond with a desire to, to revenge or to retaliate? How do you respond? Do you get angry at God? Do you question his love for him? Because, you know, we live in this culture now that I think there's a growing Christian antagonism. There is. The, the culture is moving. A little bit, there's an erosion of religious liberty, and there's this growing antagonism. Uh, to the people of to people of the Christian faith, and you understand why. I, I mean, as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ. This is if you're a Christian here. What we believe is that Jesus Christ uniquely has saved. That there is no other means of salvation. Good works will not do it. Only Christ alone. That's whom God has sent to save. But but that's an exclusive claim in a very inclusive world where all the paths go up the same mountain. And they get to the same spot. And again, remember now, the Romans didn't have a problem. The Roman government didn't have a problem with Jesus as long as he was added to the Roman pantheon. 
You know, hey, I'll worship Jesus, you can worship Zeus. You know, we'll, we'll just worship both gods. The problem that the church suffered under is that they were not willing to worship Zeus, and they didn't want Jesus among all their gods. He's the only God. That's what brought about his harshness. We see that today. Or the Christian believes that the scriptures contain the very truth of God for us. That's what we believe. The scriptures are God's truth to us. Now, but we live in a culture where there is no grand narrative of truth anymore. Everybody has their own truths. You know, Francis Schaeffer used to call it the true truth. You know, we believe in the true truth. Everybody has truths, but there's no grand narrative of truth. And so that brings about a harsh rhetoric. Or, or the idea that we believe that the scriptures do provide guidance for us to understand the nature of life. Uh, gender, marriage, you know, life in general, sexual ethics. We believe the Bible speaks to those issues. But in our culture today, of course, there's a growing, there's a growing narrative of no, what's comfortable or consensual is what goes for the person. So that's going to bring us into ridicule, a degree of harshness, perhaps ostracism, perhaps marginalization. You know how that goes. I mean, you, you're, you're, you're in the office, you're speaking about, uh, people are speaking about the latest political or cultural issue. And, and all of a sudden, some kind of more bold person speaks in a certain direction as to whatever the cultural winds are blowing for that day. And people chime in, yeah, 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 the sheep principle kicks in, and then you're standing there. What do you say? Do you introduce a clearly different biblical ethic to the conversation? No, we tend to slink back a little bit, maybe go silent. This is when we, we speak. This, this call is, is engendering a good, strong Christian witness in the world. You know, many of us haven't suffered for our faith that would require us to humble ourselves. And, and part of it is because our culture still has some roots in Christian teaching. But part of it is because we do go silent. We just, we just kind of compromise. We step back. Well, I'll talk to him later about it. And, and I would just encourage you to, to rethink your strategy here. We don't, we don't confront the cultural loves of the day with biblical truth. I think Peter is saying to stand firm, we have to stand. And, and we have to speak to the nature of our faith when given the opportunity. I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not looking to be graceless in how we speak to these issues. But I think we're called to speak to them with grace. I mean, ask yourself, I mean, do people know that you hold firmly to a love and trust in Jesus Christ? Do they know that you're trying to live your life in a way that honors God? Do they know that you're a Christian? And how would they know that? I mean, consider this maybe, even this afternoon. What has been your witness to the community? Has it been a clear witness? Or have you taken quick routes of silence when, when the conversation goes to some issue of gender or marriage or some other hot-button issue of the day? L let me just challenge you on that. Where are you in your witness? I, I think he's giving us courage to humble we have God's mighty hand that we can humble ourselves. We can cast any sort of care that we have upon him because he cares for us. So that's the first way of standing firm. Standing firm is by humbling yourself under God's mighty hand. Okay, secondly, standing firm comes by being aware that you have an enemy, that you have an adversary. 
Notice what he says there in 8. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary prowls about. You have an adversary. That word adversary just means it's kind of courtroom language. There is an opponent in a courtroom making an accusation against you. Uh, Peter calls him the devil. The devil in Hebrew is translated Satan. That's where we get our name. Satan, he's an accuser, he's a slanderer. And he's saying this adversary is your enemy. And notice how he likens your enemy to a lion. A lion that is prowling about seeking whom he can devour. Devour, that means to swallow, not to chew so big and so strong it swallows you like Jonah. Same word, Jonah, in the fish. Just swallow it up. Peter's saying Satan is looking to consume you. He's looking to destroy your faith. He's looking to cause you to fear. That's what, when lions roar, it gets people scared. And, and he's trying to move us into silence. Now we know this. Peter already knows this because in Luke 22, 31, Jesus has said to Peter, he says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Now just take that metaphor. That doesn't spell for a happy ending. To sift you like wheat. But then Jesus says, but I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. Your faith won't fail. Satan was going after his faith to compromise, to move him into silence, to move him into apostasy. That's the idea. That's the enemy that is about you, to move you into some sort of, to deny your witness to the community. Now, this animal imagery is interesting because you see it in Daniel and you see it in Revelation. And what you see it in those places is that not only is there a direct attack of Satan upon the church, the believer, but the darkness of Satan also pervades corporate and governmental structures. That, that they're, that they're, and I'm sure Peter is speaking about the Roman socio-political system that was pressing on the church at the time. But it is even for us. I mean, governments, you know governments have a certain... They're influenced by the world. They're influenced by evil. It doesn't mean all governments are evil. It doesn't mean our government is evil. It just, they have a tendency to move in that direction. In the corporate world, you call it the law of the jungle. It's the law of the jungle. Every man for himself. Every woman for herself. It's, it's me or it's, it's no one. I mean, there's a certain... And you know that within both corporate structures of America with governmental structures, you move in any sort of faith speech, you're on thin ground. You're on thin ice. You're on shaky ground. To stand firm means that we have to recognize that there is an enemy that is going after you. Do you believe that? You know, a lot of us, I think, uh, we don't understand that we ought to expect this danger. There's a sort of benign anti-intellectualism. I mean, I mean, I know... I know most of you in this room technically believe in the existence of Satan. 57% of Americans do. A personal devil. Uh, most of us believe that. But you know, in our day-to-day -day lives, uh, we're more children of the Enlightenment. But we're more science. Uh, you know, devils and Satan, it's more associated with the dark ages of ghouls and goblins kind of thing. We don't really live in that world anymore. And so we almost walk and we carry ourselves about as if he's really not a player anymore. 
that if there's evil in the world, we just need to bring more education or we need to bring more opportunities to these people. And then they'll reform and they'll become Western like us. Well, that's not so. There is this anti-super... And it's in our culture. You know, Peter Berger was a sociologist, um, an eminent sociologist uh, in America, but really known throughout the Western world, particularly last century, in the 20th century, still alive today. But he speaks in this book, A Rumor of Angels. And he's a Lutheran, so he's a, he is a Christian, and he's confronting the secularism of our day, the anti-supernaturalism, that we're rationalists, that we live by what we see and by what we experience. And the supernatural is really just fakery, or it's inventions of men and women. Here's what he says. He says, for whatever reason... Sizable numbers of the specimen, the modern man, have lost a propensity for all, for the uncanny, for all those possibilities that are legislated against by the canons of secularized rationality. In other words, the people don't believe in, in this supernatural world. They, they, they don't believe in any of this all. He says, these subterranean rumblings of supernaturalism can, it seems, coexist with all sorts of upstairs rationalism. He says, in a study of American students, 80% of the respondents expressed a need for religious faith, while only 48% admitted to a belief in God. What he's saying to us here is that if you're, even, if you're not a Christian here, you don't believe in heaven, there's still something in us that knows there's something beyond what we see and taste and touch and feel. He quotes a study in Germany that 80% of Germans pray. Germans, very secularized society, yet they're praying. England, another survey was done there. 50% polled had sought a medium or fortune teller within the last six months. People know there's something more. And I'm telling you that for the Christian to live in a practical anti-supernaturalism is dangerous to you. The other way we don't want to go is over supernaturalism, which is when we make every sin or every problem attributable to Satan. So if I'm running late to a meeting and I get a red light, that's Satan. You know? Or if I've got to do some ministry and I get a cold and I'm losing my voice, that's Satan. You know, we attribute everything to Satan. And this is the way we are as humans. And I, I shared with you a few weeks ago, or probably a few months ago, that, that great line from Martin Luther, I, I think it's becoming my favorite personally. He says, we're all a bunch of drunks. He goes, we get on the horse and we fall off to the right. And then we climb back on the horse and we fall off to the left. We can't seem to get it right. You know, we're always going in one, one or the other wrong direction. C.S. Lewis comes to our aid, though, and he gives us this wisdom about steering between this anti-supernaturalism and this over-supernaturalism. He says, these are, two and opposite, these are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So we want to embrace an understanding that there is a devil, that there is evil. It is prowling about, seeking to dissuade you from living by faith. Living by faith. You're called to resist 
that devil. You're called to be watchful. Notice what he says. He says, resist him, right? He says, resist him. In fact, he says, firm in your faith. That word firm is like a foundation. You're called to resist him. There was this French woman. The Huguenots were French Protestants in the 18th century, and they came under great persecution from the the Catholic powers at the time. And uh, they were put in prison. Um, Oftentimes they'd be caught worshiping. Pastor was killed. Men were sent to pull rows on uh, galley ships, and the women were put into slavery in homes and houses as servants. And um, this one woman... Uh, Her brother was killed uh, for not uh, bending the knee to Rome, but but holding firm his uh, Protestant Reformed convictions. And uh, this woman, um, her name was Marie Durant, that she entered into this Tower of Constance. It was a tower in southern France that looked out over the Mediterranean Sea, and she was put in there in 1729. She spent 38 years in that tower. And when you go back there now to that that tower, you can see scribbled in the stone, resiste, or resist, resist. To resist giving way in faith to the temptations of darkness or the powers against faith. There is remaining firm in faith. To be firm in faith means that you remain trusting in the goodness and the power of God to deliver you and to deliver you in due time, that there is a firmness that we are to have in faith. So to stand firm, it is to resist. It is to be aware that you have an enemy. So it's to humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, but it's to resist. It's to be aware, to be alert, to not succumb to spiritual drowsiness because you don't see some man in red tights with a pointy tail that you don't have to worry about him. He exists, and his task and scheme is to prowl about seeking to dissuade you from being the witness to God that you ought to be. Okay, look with me at the third, the third in verses 10 and 11. This is a beautiful passage here. To be firm in the faith is to gain a divine perspective on suffering, a divine perspective on suffering. Notice what he says there in verse 10. He says, and after you've suffered a little while, or literally you could translate it, but after you've suffered for a little while, suffering will come to the Christian. Now, I think this suffering is more than just suffering for the faith. I think it probably has a broader application. Many of us suffer issues of marriage. We We have suffering of health. We have suffering of children, of financial insecurity. Because, you know, back in chapter 1, he says you're going to endure various trials. You know, various trials. They're going to come in all stripes and flavors, right? And he's saying here that, that you need to gain a perspective of suffering, that suffering precedes the glory that is yours. Notice he says, but after you've suffered a little while, after you've suffered, you're going to suffer. And suffering comes before the glory. Do you see that? Because he says, he says, after you've suffered a while, the God of all grace, is that a beautiful title? The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore and will confirm and will strengthen and will establish you. 
That's the promise. When you suffer, the suffering has a purpose. It's to restore. It's to confirm. It's to develop you. It's to move you to be like himself. It's to bring you to glory. That when you are suffering, perhaps you're suffering right now. Do you see the suffering as just something to get through or something to immediate, to just try as as quick as you can to alleviate? Or or can you begin to think with me? Because if we want to stand firm, then we have to begin thinking, God, you're going to do a purpose-filled work in this. You're going to bring me to restoration. You're going to bring me to a position of establishment. You're going to bring me to strength. You're going to bring me to confirm this is an opportunity for you to trust God, that he's doing a work in you. And you know this. You know that he's not against you because it says he's called you into his own eternal glory. He has called you. And notice itself that God himself will confirm, establish, strengthen, and confirm. He himself will. That's put into the text to remind you that he's doing it himself. He's not going to delegate it to anybody. That God's going to use the suffering that you're in to establish and confirm and strengthen you. Because you've been called. You know that glory awaits you. This is for you. He has called you into it. Just like in chapter 1 when he called you as elect exiles, he's calling you to a glory. He'll make sure you get there. And he's going to use suffering because this crown of thorns that is crushing you will be weaved into a crown of glory for you. It's going to have a purpose. He's going to move you to himself. And he's going to use... This is, what, this is why, look in verse 11. seems like an out-of-the-way line. Like Peter got distracted or something. What's he say there? He says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. I mean, to a people that are suffering greatly. To him be... It seems like a funny thing to say in the shadow of the mighty Roman Empire and the shadow of a, of a lion seeking and prowling about seeking whom he can devour. We're going to stop right now and just praise God for his power? It's like we're getting our heads handed to us. He says, no, no, no. He says, suffering precedes the glory. The glory is coming because of this. Do you see that suffering for the Christian, you're not experiencing God's displeasure. Now, now, if you go out and sin radically and you face the repercussions of that, and you truly are a Christian, then God will bring discipline to bring you back on the path that leads to glory. But when suffering comes to you, either from the faith or from outside of yourself, no, that's not God's displeasure. No, he has intents and purposes in this for you, that suffering leads to this glory. That's what we've already read in chapter 1. You've been born again to a living hope through, the, through Jesus Christ and his resurrection. He said to an, an imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for you, and God is reserving it for you. He says, even though you go through trials right now, the trials precede that. Or Paul said the same thing, that these temporal afflictions that you are experiencing are achieving for us an eternal glory that's beyond measure. You can't even measure it. It's so great. So I want to encourage you for us to stand firm that we have to understand suffering precedes glory. So when you suffer, if you suffer, as you suffer, you're thinking, God, I want you to confirm. I want you to establish. I want you to strengthen me. I want to see you change me in this. And you will lift me up in due time. You cast your care upon him. and He'll live. Do you see how this all relates to suffering? And, 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 then, and then the fourth point, the last point, to stand firm, is this idea of the importance of the community. And you may not see that as clearly. I'm referring in chapter in uh, verses 12 to 14. Um, he speaks about 
He says, I'm exhorting and declaring this to you, the true grace of God, stand firm. And he's talking to the church here. I think he's speaking about our need for one another. And he, you see that Sylvanus, you know, it could be Silas. We don't know exactly who it is, but he's delivering the letter. He maybe wrote part of the letter, or at least penned it as kind of a scribe or a secretary. But he's delivering the letter. Paul commends him because he wants the church to receive the letter as from him. And notice that he talks about she who is in Babylon. What's that mean? Well, it probably references Peter, who's in Rome. Rome was now the decadent culture as Babylon was once before. And he's saying that we in Babylon, the chosen also, the churches together, banding together. He says, we send you our greetings, greet one another with a kiss. There's not a romance associated with that. That traditionally, the men would kiss the men and the women would kiss the women. It showed this new unity that we have around the gospel. That our bonds with each other in this room are tighter than the biological bonds you have with your children who may not be believers. And he's saying that we have to, to be firm in the faith means that we have to be together. We have to strive together. That's what the whole letter's been about, hasn't it? I mean, the whole letter's been about identifying us as exiles together. We're pilgrims, we're traveling. We've been saved by God's grace. We've been born again. We're called to be holy. We're called to love one another earnestly. We're called to respond to the government, and we're called to respond to people, and we're called to respond to our spouses in a way that glorifies God. We're called to suffer together. I mean, that's what the whole letter's been through, that, that we as a church might stand firm together. You know, it's like the old Greek phalanx. You know, phalanx is a word we don't use anymore, but it identifies kind of the, the formation of, of military, of soldiers together, arm in arm, together. The Greek phalanx was often like a rectangle, and they would move. And you didn't want to, if you broke apart that phalanx, they were toast, they were gone. But hanging together, they were a mighty fighting force. That's why I think he's calling for us to be, like this spiritual phalanx, arm in arm, together, standing firm, waiting for that day in due time where he will exalt us. The, the church is to be that way, but in an attractional way. You know, we've talked about your witness, you know, in the first point. And, and the church is often seen as having this centrifugal force, you know, kind of the, the centrifugal force that, that keeps wanting to outward more and more to the ends of the earth, and that is missions that we go to the ends of the earth, that the church is to keep spreading and going outward. But missiologists also remind us that there's a centripetal force. A, trims, a centripetal force is that inward movement, like a whirlpool, where everything comes in. There's an attractional sense to the church where people see us loving one another earnestly, striving together, suffering together. And they won't see that centripetal force in any other group or committee or club. But we do it because we love one another. We sacrifice for one another. We serve one another. We forgive one another. We, we, we strive with one another. And, and people will see that as days get dark. They see the beauty of the community and they're drawn to it. In fact, one author said it this way. He says, Christians exhibited chastity, marital faithfulness, self-control in the midst of a decadent sex-saturated empire, the lives of the believing community, nursed and shaped by the biblical story, enabled them to live as resident aliens, as lights in a dark world. In the cultural context of the Roman Empire, their contrary values led to a contrary image of community that was attractive. That is what the church is to be. So Peter here, ending this letter, gives a final charge to us. 
He warns us to stand firm, and he tells us how. To humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. To be aware that you have an enemy and live in light of that. To, to, to redefine suffering, to gain a divine perspective, and then to stand firm as a community that we might usher each other into that presence of God. This is the word for us as we finish this beautiful letter. Let's take a minute now, maybe, and just in silence, just consider uh, where you are in life. If you're not a Christian and you're stimulated by this conversation, by these ideas, uh, speak with someone next to you. I have no doubt they'll be able to explain things to you. Um, For those that maybe are convicted that your witness has been silent more than vocal, ask God for grace and ask God for strength in that. Seek God for strength to walk this out, and then I'll pray for us in just a moment.